Wasn't that a good song? And I'll tell you, Brother Tim does a great job. Were it not for grace, I'd be ever running and never accomplishing anything. I'll be a bit more calm today in my uh, preaching, and um, I'd rather not be. I'd rather run around and yell and keep you awake and make you listen. Uh, But anyway, I want you to listen to the content of the message today as I go back to Calvary, as I was last week and today. I want us to look at six of the surroundings of the cross, six surroundings, uh, six events that took place around Calvary. Uh, Luke 23, our text verses, uh, verses 33 through 38, You'll find uh, these surroundings also recorded in Matthew chapter 27, uh, Mark chapter 15, and then again in John chapter 19. Heavenly Father, as I preach this morning, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, and Lord, may I preach in a way that would be pleasing to you, and I pray that you would help us not just to listen, but Lord, help us to envision what we hear today. And then, Lord, I ask that you would help us to see what is going on in our country, what's going on in our world today as it relates to the behavior around the crucifixion. For certainly, Lord, your coming is nigh. Without question, we look forward with great anticipation to the sounding of your trumpet. I pray, Lord, if there'd be one here today or one watching this message or hearing and that they do not know you as Savior, that today they would come humbly before you as a sinner, asking you to forgive their sin and be their Savior. Bless and power, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I preached on four miracles that took place at Calvary. Those have been on my heart and in my mind since remembering and thinking about as Christ was crucified, there was a darkness that fell from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon. That was a public demonstration of the Father saying, this is my son. Then there was a private proof that took place inside the temple as a veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. Third, there was an earthquake that took place that rent the rocks. It was a mighty earthquake. And then lastly, there was a resurrection of many of the saints that arose as Christ arose from the grave some three days after his burial. I'm going to back up a bit this morning and look at the events that took place around the cross. These events that seem so real and powerful today, probably because of the surroundings or the context as it relates to the culture of our day today. We're certainly reminded again as we read this story and these events that God is in control. Aren't you glad God's in control today? There are six things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the drinks that were offered to Christ, the wicked men that surrounded him, the mention of the clothes of the Lord Jesus, an attempt of vindication. We see hatred around the cross, and then we see the observers or onlookers of Calvary. First of all, I want you to notice they offered Jesus not just a drink, but drinks. 
as I've read the story of Calvary, I, in my mind, have blended the stories to think that perhaps there was just one time that they offered the Savior a drink. But as I've looked at all four of the Gospels, I recognize that there is more than one. There's at least three different times that they offered the Savior to drink. And it's interesting in understanding Christ's payment for our sin. Before Christ was nailed to the cross, the soldiers offered him a drink. The Bible says in Matthew 27, 34, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. First, I want to, I want to point out that this is a fulfilled prophecy of Psalm 69, 21, where the Bible says, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So often prophecy is fulfilled by those who are ignorant of or rejectors of truth. But God is in control. As we read of, of Josephus and the historians of the day, most of the time they gave to the one being crucified a narcotic type drink that would bring some numbing as they would go through the sufferings of the crucifixion. The Bible tells us here that when Christ tasted of this, he would not drink it. He refused it, Matthew 27, 34. He refused that because he came not only to die, he came to suffer for our sins. He would not accept any relief. John 10, the Bible says in verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my fathers. It's interesting to note then that the soldiers now, because he rejects this, they begin to mock him and they take a vessel and they fill this vessel or this cup full of vinegar and they have a sponge on hyssop and basically what they were doing is they were mocking him because this vessel was used as it was given to a king to drink of and they were mocking him because he claimed to be a king and they said if thou be the king of the Jews save thyself I want you to look at verse number 35 and the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided him saying he saved others let him save himself if he be Christ the chosen of God isn't it interesting the commentary of the unconverted and the wicked thinking they know more about Christ than he does himself. If he was the Christ, he didn't come to save himself. He came to die to save us. You understand, we don't listen to the commentary of the world on truth because they cannot understand truth. He was proving that he was Christ, not by saving himself, but by laying down his life for us. It's also interesting, when Jesus was on the cross, he uttered the words, I thirst. It's interesting to note this statement of Jesus because it was Jesus who preached 
on the rich man in hell, the rich man who had asked if he would send Lazarus that he would dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue for he was tormented in the flame. It seems as Jesus was on the cross, he was not speaking necessarily of a physical thirst but of a spiritual one as he was on Calvary to pay for the sins and the sin debt of all mankind. You see, his greatest sufferings were not physical but spiritual as he died in place of you and me, the sinner. It, it is then the Lord Jesus that cries, it is finished. Isn't it interesting the, the pictures that we get of Christ on Calvary saying, I thirst. Uh, those that are in hell thirst because they rejected the payment of Christ on the cross. And so it's interesting as we study the drinks uh, offered to the Lord Jesus. Second of all, I want you to notice the wicked men that surrounded Calvary. Jesus was not crucified alone. Are you with me this morning? Two thieves were crucified with him. Uh, the two men were called malefactors and thieves, Matthew and Mark. These were terribly bad men, by the way. That's exactly what Barabbas was. John 18.40 tells us Barabbas was a robber. He's the one that should have been on the third cross, not Jesus. But Jesus died in the place of Barabbas, representing you and me, the sinner. The historian Josephus says that Palestine was infested with robbers and thieves. You may recall the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan where uh, the man was on the Jericho Road and he was robbed, he was beaten, and he was left half dead. Now Rome was aggressive in going after these type of men because they weren't just robbers, they were murderers, and they crucified most of these men that they would catch. To add to the shame of Christ, they took Jesus and they put him between two thieves. He was given by Pilate the most notable place of sinners in paying for the sin of sinners. I wish I could shout about this this morning. You can, can't you? Can you say amen? amen. Aren't you glad? Uh, that if you'll help me with that, I'll let you do that part. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The location of Jesus numbered among sinners, given the chief place of sinners between two of the most wicked men, all he was doing was fulfilling the will and the plan and the prophecy of God. Thirdly, I want to mention the garments or the clothes of the Lord Jesus. This was an interesting study as there are at least three mentions of Christ's clothes or what he was wearing during the time of trial and crucifixion. His clothes are mentioned when he is in court and he is clothed in a special robe in Herod's court. The, the mockery robe in Pilate's court and then again when he's on Calvary, he is stripped 
of his own clothes. It's obvious that the world sees significance in the clothes we wear because clothes make an expression. Here they're expressing that they despise him and they express their mockery of him and they express their disbelief in him because they dress him up like a king. They mock him and then they strip the robe from him. Now there was a custom about clothes at a crucifixion as the Roman soldiers typically would take the clothes of the executed as a trophy. Think about this. They would take the clothes of the, of the sometimes well-known thief or well-known crook and they would say, I'm the one that crucified him. Here's the clothes that he wore. And that's exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus. It's interesting to note in John 19, 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified him, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat to me. This is an indication that there are four soldiers that took part in the execution. It's interesting to note that the coat of the Lord Jesus was without a seam, woven as an entire piece. John 19, 34, think of this. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it. Boy, this ought to get your attention. But cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see, Jesus' coat was obviously of more value than the other garments. And tearing it into four pieces wouldn't make sense because that would destroy its value. So they decided because it was woven in one piece that they would not tear it apart, but they would gamble or they would cast lots to see which soldier got it. Interesting how this fulfilled prophecy and tells us once again that God is in control. These soldiers were cruel in their taking of the garments. This is interesting to me. When Jesus was on the cross, they stripped him of his clothes and made him publicly naked before the people. And that's just the way sin treats its subjects. It strips a sinner of dignity it strips the sinner of honor and dishonors them and shames them in every way. Go back in your mind, if you will, to the Garden of Eden. You see, sin shamed Adam and Eve in the garden. And here, Jesus, as he is stripped of his garments, is showing that he is paying for the sins of mankind from the day of creation throughout the end of time. There's no shame in nakedness until righteousness is present. And they're attempting here at Calvary to make God like man, but their attempt only revealed their own wickedness and it fulfilled what Christ had come to do. As the psalmist said in Psalm 22 in verse number 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. The fourth thing I want you to pay particular notice to. It's very interesting because it's very typical of the behavior of our day. This has to do with Pilate. 
Pilate wants to vindicate himself of any wrongdoing. Don't miss it. Pilate wants to be seen as a fair man, as a just man, and anything but a sinner. Now look at me. Until you recognize you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you'll go to hell thinking you're a good man. Unless you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, Pilate never did that. Pilate spent his time vindicating himself, saying that he was fair and just. You see, he wanted nothing to do with the crucifixion. As many in the world today that don't want to be identified with having anything to do with the crucifixion, but you and I did. It was our sins that put him on the cross. You see, it makes us feel bad, but it should because we are guilty. We are the sinner. But Pilate worked to avoid being guilty. He did it with his words. He did it with his blame of others. Pilate had a sign. It's called a title in the Bible, title. Uh, he had a sign posted on the cross of Jesus. Now, all criminals, they did this. They would take their crime, put it on a sign, and the criminal would carry that sign in front of them as they went to be crucified, letting everyone know they were a thief, a robber, a murderer, or whatever the case may be. The title that he made for Jesus was one of mockery. He was being crucified because he was the king of the Jews. Pilate's contempt and hatred for the Jews is seen in this. Boy, pay attention to this. He's stating publicly that Jesus is their king. Jesus is the king of those Jews. Now, Pilate didn't like the Jews. Pilate had been embarrassed by them in court. You see, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He tried to wash his hands and, and, and signify that he was not a sinner. He had been forced to sentence Jesus to death against his own will. And I'll show you how in just a moment as the Jews used political pressure against Pilate, and he used shame against them. Pilate was publicly scorning their king. He was saying, a poor criminal from Galilee is a fitting king for these Jewish people. Even though he meant to shame and anger the Jews, Pilate was right. Jesus was the king of the Jews. Again, even in hatred, truth is proclaimed. Now his own, the Jews, they had rejected Jesus. Though he loved them, he ministered to them, he did miracles for them. The Bible said he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Pilate will get no credit for stating the truth about Christ. Like many, in fact, all, according to Philippians 2.11, will fall on their knees and call or acknowledge Christ as Lord, but it won't be for their salvation. It will be for their damnation in hell because they recognized him as an important person, but not as a personal Savior. The sign was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Latin was the official language because of the Roman rule. Hebrew was the national language of the Jews. 
Greek was a common language. It was a one commonly and commercially used by the people. Now think about it. The people in Jerusalem, they'd come from all over the world. You know why? To celebrate the Passover, a religious feast, and they were able to read the sign, everyone in their own language. And Jerusalem being packed with people, they passed by where he was crucified, and they would take this story back all over the world. They crucified the one called Christ. What a witness. What a powerful witness. It's interesting to note that the chief priest objected to the sign. You might want to turn your Bibles to John 19, 21 and look at this because it's the way the media crafts words today. You see, the Jewish leaders did not want the honor of Jesus, the king of the Jews, on the sign. They did not want shame to them written for the public to see. I want you to think about what I'm about to say. They tried to get Pilate to crucify Jesus on sedition charges, not claiming to be the king. They rejected him. And I want you to, uh, it's interesting. I'm going to read Luke 23, and then I'll get to John 19. They said, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Now, that's not true. Jesus didn't forbid to pay taxes. He told them to pay their taxes. In fact, in fact, he told Peter how to get his taxes. He told him to go fishing, and he'd find a coin in its mouth. Now, if I had to pay my taxes that way, I'd go hungry and be in trouble for not paying my taxes. But he caught a fish, and there was a coin in its mouth. Now, they say here, they say here that he forbid to give tribute to Caesar. That's not what he said. Jesus said, whose inscription's on that coin? They said, Caesar's. He said, render to Caesar what Caesar's. Now they're lying, but here's what they said. Saying that he himself is Christ the king. You know what they were saying? He is violating separation of church and state. That's what they're saying. They're trying to put state against the church or the religious against the government. That's what they're trying to do. And they blackmailed Pilate to deliver Christ to be crucified. And here's what they said in John 19, 12. If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. So this didn't have anything to do with spiritual or religious. They were all approaching this as far as government is concerned. And they said, Pilate, if you don't crucify this man then you don't have anything to do with Caesar. You don't support Caesar, and he's the one that's given you your job. The Jews rejected the idea that Christ was a king. They said he was an imposter, but Pilate put right on the sign, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate had heard Christ speak about being king when Jesus said, to this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world. In the end, Pilate gave credibility to what Jesus said more than what the Jews said. No wonder the Jewish leaders were angry. Pilate had honored Christ and made them look like they were crucifying the king. We see the same treatment of truth and God and right today in our own culture. They'll say this, don't go to church. But then they'll say, now you need to care about others by not going to church. 
That's what they say today. Now, it's okay to go to the liquor store. It's okay to go to the ball game. It's okay to go to the mall. But in John 19, 21, notice the word crafting. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. They said, no, don't put on there he's a king. Put on there that he claimed to be the king. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It's interesting to note that Pilate's hatred of the Jews, he proclaimed the truth. Notice number five, the hatred at Calvary. Jesus was publicly mocked, suffering crucifixion, and they mocked him. They had no care. They had no concern for humanity at all. And here we see them as eager as wolves to see Jesus destroyed. We see the same attitude in our nation today. They'll violently, violently tear down a statue, burn a building, or even take someone's life. This is interesting, the hatred. The mockers included the common people passing by, the Sanhedrin, the soldiers, and the thieves. Matthew 27, 39, they that passed by reviled him. Folks, these people are here to celebrate Passover. These folks are here to celebrate a religious ceremony. Isn't it something how our world today is so religious and yet rejects Christ as Savior? A typical crowd like today. They didn't live by principle, but by circumstances of the day, by the fad and popular actions of today. The same crowd just a few days before had cried, Hosanna, and now they cry, crucify him. You can have that crowd out there. I'll stay with the crowd that comes Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and is faithful to the word of God. The Bible says the chief priest mocked him with the scribes and the elders. The religious leaders of the day carrying out the Passover are mocking the Passover lamb as he's being crucified. You say, how, how, how crazy. But that's exactly what's going on in our nation today. Talking religious and yet blind. The soldiers mocked him. That's not surprising. The thieves were crucified with him and they cast the same in his teeth. That's not surprising. These men were the lowest of their day. Words describe the speech of the crowd. Mocking, reviled, railed, derided, and wagging their heads. These words were blasphemous and belittling, but they fulfilled what Christ had said. Psalm 109, 25, I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shake their heads. Psalm 22, 7, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head. They mocked his power. Think about this. Would you go to Matthew 27, 40? Notice this. And saying... Now, this is why you can't get religion from a liberal professor in our day because they're as ignorant in our day as they was in this day. 
Notice what the Bible says, Matthew 27, 40, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself if thou be the Son of God come down from the cross. If they had any understanding at all, they would have known he came to die on the cross. That's why he came. That's why you have to be careful who you learn scripture and theology and truth from. It's interesting what they said in Matthew 27. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. They were lying. They wouldn't believe him before. They didn't believe him now. And when he rose from the grave, they didn't believe him. Don't you compromise with the crowd that says, if you do this, I'll believe. If they don't believe the truth, they won't believe. If you're here today, you're not going to receive Christ as Savior. If you're not a Christian, if you're not going to receive the truth of the gospel, you're not going to receive the truth, though some compromise be attempted. It must be received as it is. And then I close with the onlookers or the gazers of Calvary. Jesus is on the cross, and now they watch him. It was typical to watch one after crucifixion, so they could not be taken down. Josephus told us of one man that was taken down from crucifixion and actually survived. But they set a watch here, and they're watching him. Luke 23, the Bible says, the people stood beholding. You know what they did? They were giving a long witness to the fact that Jesus was crucified and he died. God was using this viewing to further prove the crucifixion. The evidence was abundant about the death of Christ. The media said this. They said he fainted on the cross and revived in the coolness of the grave. Do you know there are theologians so-called that teach that Jesus only, uh, he only fainted on the cross and when they put him in the cool grave that he, uh, that he woke up from fainting? Uh, folks, the Bible tells us the truth. He died for our justification. All of the devil's arguments about the crucifixion are nothing but blatant lies. We hold in our hands this morning the truth of the word of God. I say three things in closing. Number one, trust him today if you've never trusted him as Savior. Second of all, believe what he says in his book. Don't let the doubters and the fear mongers cause you to doubt this book. He's always been and he is in control. And last of all, I say, let's serve him. Stand with me if you will. Heavenly Father, thank you for dying on the cross for our sin. Thank you, Lord, for the price that you paid, the pain, the suffering. All of the pictures and the images that we see, Lord, they're pictures of those that we see in Scripture from the rich man in hell, Adam and Eve, naked and ashamed in the garden. Thank you, Lord, for paying for our sin. I pray if there be one here today or those that are watching that have not trusted you, that today they would trust you as Savior. I pray, Lord, that we as Christians would not be discouraged.
by all of the things we see around us. For Lord, these soldiers, Pilate, Caesar, all of them were doing nothing but fulfilling the scripture. May we be thankful that we have put our faith and trust in you and may we continue to serve you. Bless our invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. As he sings.